Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We thought all people were in some form or another. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. I'm Janelle. We're back again. New year, new us. New year, new you. (laughs) Not new me. Hopefully (laughs) less chaotic than last year. Same old bitch. No. (laughs) I'm in therapy. It's fine. We're we're progressing. Same same girl. (laughs) Getting better day by day. Do you know that whole thing where we had to take time off because I was too busy? Yeah. I'm in therapy about it. It's great. I mean, therapy's awesome. Why you got to be busy all the time, bitch? Calm down. (laughs) I always always encourage therapy. Therapy has helped me so much. Yes. So much. Me too. Therapy, meditation, nice massages. Hell yeah. Treat yourself. You might need it after this episode. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Downers. Incoming. Big downer. Big downer. Uh, if this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. This <gasps> To me? To you. <laughs> no, to the listener. Damn it. Not you. Girl, no. <laughs> any special hello. <laughs> uh, we got a doozy this week. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm going to start off so 2023 many tr- with a bang. Yeah, there's going to be so many trigger warnings. Yes. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but before we get to that. Let's head to the newsroom. Wonder if anything political is happening between now and January. Interesting, because my news story is a bit political. Yeah. A bit. <laughs> I'm scared um, for next year. For this year. For yeah. Next, this year. <laughs> so there is a West Virginia lawmaker, state senator Randy Smith, Republican. West Virginia, I mean. Big eye roll. <laughs> yeah. So he has informed voters that he plans to sponsor a bill that proposes people convicted of drug offenses could receive a reduced sentence if they voluntarily sterilize. Uh, so that is not where I thought that was fucking going. 
Yeah, so this is... How do um, those two things correlate, sir? So Smith said, (laughs) if you want to lessen your prison sentence, if you're a man, you can get a vasectomy so you can't produce anymore. If you're a woman, then you can get your tubes tied so you don't bring any more drug babies into the system. Okay, let's stop right there. Vasectomies can be reversed. Yes. Tubes cannot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and you said drug babies. Yes. Okay, so these are drug addicts, not like drug dealers. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this not is from... how you treat that disease. <laughs> this is from Newsweek. <laughs> while Sam, or while Smith acknowledged, some might say his proposal was cruel and unfair and violates constitutional rights. And also a little eugenics. Also that. Dab eugenics. He argued that until we cut the head of the snake off, we're trying to take care nope. of the problem after the fact. Nope. That's not how that works. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of groups raising head concerns. Head of the snake. I can't. I know. <laughs> Get your euphemism. This is not. Also, I think this is definitely a result of the failed war on drugs. Um, yeah. I mean, West Virginia is is rampant with yes. opium. Yeah. Yeah. All up in there. Mm-hmm. It's like it was targeted or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it was. There's lots of documentaries about that. <laughs> the ACLU obviously has come out and been like, yeah. yo, this is basically eugenics. Yeah. Um, they are like not on board. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, It'd be different if he's like, you could get your sentence reduced if you go through like really hardcore experimental like drug treatment programs. Yeah. Because that's how it should be. Yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, this article from Newsweek goes on to talk about the efficacy of eugenics, how it's not been it's proven. It's never gone to, away. Yeah. <laughs> it says investigative reports in California revealed that 144 women were pressured into sterilization between 2005 and 2013 with little or no evidence that officials counseled them or offered alternative treatment resulting in reparation payments as high as $25,000. Yep there's still i mean it's you know there is an amazing um short series that someplace underneath did just recently about forced abortions and sterilization in the united states that is definitely worth a listen but it does touch on eugenics forced sterilization in the prison systems for sterilization of fucking children who are poor. I know. Yeah. The fact yeah. that it is 2023 now mm-hmm. and... It shudders. Yeah. <laughs> and we are even... Well, not we, anybody, is considering a law that is tantamount to eugenics is mm-hmm. absolutely insane. However... If you listen to our Fringe Festival episode where we talked about forced sterilization, um, you'll know that West Virginia was amongst the states that were the last to get rid of their eugenics laws. Um, So I'm... Are we that surprised? Yeah, I'm not surprised. (laughs) I'm not surprised. But like, that is also not the way to deal with the issue of drug addiction. Yep. You know, like... There's lots of better ways. Yeah, and it's so ingrained culturally in yeah. West Virginia, and it's directly tied to mining culture, um, mountain identity, uh, specifically Appalachian mountain identity. Yeah. Um, that area was specifically targeted. It is notoriously one of the poorest areas in the fucking nation. Mm-hmm. So poor that people can, can't afford to even move. Like, can't. Right, right. They're stuck. Yep. So, like, 
there needs to be other approaches. <laughs> right, right. You, I, how in your right mind is sterilization even the first thing that you think about? Yeah, yeah. So if you live in West Virginia. We're sorry. Um, we're, yeah. First of all, we're sorry. It's a beautiful place. But it's beautiful. I would recommend getting in touch with your congressperson and maybe saying, yo, I'm not super cool with this eugenics thing that uh, yeah. Senator What's-His-Nuts is talking about. Yeah. What's his nuts doing <laughs> is what I want to know. If you sterilize, sir. Yeah. How about you, sir? How about you get a vasectomy and tell us how it feels? No, you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, we're going to move on to Netflix and Kill. This week, we are talking about Girl in the Picture. Ooh. Yes, which I've finally gotten around to watching. Mm-hmm. It is a documentary. It is like an hour 45, I think, mm-hmm. but like a single standalone One, documentary yeah, that we don't see mm-hmm. very often. <laughs> um, so this looks at uh, the story of Sharon Marshall and who she was uh, essentially and franklin delano floyd who raised her as his daughter after she is murdered people start realizing they didn't know as much about her as they thought and that franklin was a real fucked up guy and Mm -hmm. it was i mean it's the story is just like crazy essentially when she was younger, um, she was abducted by Franklin Floyd, who then raised her as his daughter, but also sexually assaulted and raped her. They had a child, um, forced her to move and live under aliases, work as a sex worker. I mean, I mean it's just horrible, but wild like it's just a twisting turning tale of Mm -hmm. of this poor girl honestly Mm -hmm. thoughts i mean i did watch this a long time ago yeah i know (laughs) like i said finally i've gotten around to go back into my brain a little bit yeah yeah there and the fucked up part is there were people who recognized some things were fucking amiss yes and because they kept like moving and shifting their story and changing things around, it yeah. like never got caught. And I will also say, I mean, this is I, this is not an excuse for this, but this was happening in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, she she died in nineteen ninety. So like, this is all happening in the eighties. There's a very different attitude towards recognizing that kind of thing, where it was more of a like. It's not really my business. I'm going to yeah. do my best to, like, protect the people around me. But, like... Well, and some of the people involved were just really young. Yeah. Or in bad situations yeah. themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's... That's tough. It's tough. Mm-hmm. Tough watch. Very yeah, sad. it's very hard. But really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, that is Girl in the Picture on Netflix. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Lots of trigger warnings. Trigger, trigger, trigger. All the trigger warnings. Mm -hmm. Uh, Inspired by Girl in the Picture. Oh, (laughs) jeez. I wanted to look at people because part part of the problem was with finding both Franklin and Sharon um, was they had both used multiple aliases. And back then you could change your name like you change your underwear. (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, so I wanted to look at some people who used aliases to 
evade capture for at least a little while or to hide out. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a pretty common practice. Oh, yeah. Amongst criminals. (laughs) Do you? Yeah, I have a name that I use specifically as an artist. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. It's I'm like... an alias. <laughs> first of all, I mean, it is technically an alias. I think anytime I say alias, like criminal, definitely, yeah. or like spy, like... Yeah, but it's common for artists. Right. It's common right. for writers. <laughs> it's common yep. in the arts overall. Yep. So, yeah. So, we are going to start in Scotland... Oh my gosh, are we both in the UK? I think. We're I know. Just Sorry, UK. Across the pond. We're hammering nonstop. you really hard this month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are talking about Peter Tobin. Aha. Okay. <laughs> have you heard? I've, I've heard a little bit about this. Okay. I haven't read too much about it, okay. but I have heard a little. So he was born in Johnstone, Renfrewshire, Scotland. You did amazing. Thank you. <laughs> uh, in 1946. He was the youngest of eight siblings, and he was definitely the problem child. Like, he was the problem child. <laughs> At the age of seven, Tobin was sent to an approved school, which is something that was kind of a new concept to me. Okay. I always get excited when there's, like, these new little things that I'm learning, right? So in the UK, they had these things called approved schools that were they were residential schools um, that kids were typically sent to either under court order or if they were deemed beyond parental control. Mm-hmm. So it's almost so like, like a, a military school. Yeah, uh, kind of. They land, they're kind of in between like a boarding school, which was pretty easy to leave without permission, mm-hmm. and something called a borstal. Mm-hmm. Um, which is more of like a youth prison. It's kind yeah. of in between those two things. Mm-hmm. For juvenile delinquents. <laughs> yeah. It's I imagine it more of like a like a BD, like a behavioral disorder yeah. type mm-hmm. school, except residential. Yeah. Although he would actually also end up in a borstal in England um, after he was convicted of burglary and forgery. What's wrong with that? <laughs> as a kid, as a kiddo. This is like as a teenager. As a clever teenager, I would say. True, true. Thinking outside the box. In 1969, Tobin married his girlfriend. He was 23. She was 17. Uh, As you do? Not great. Question mark. Apparently. This seems to be a common thing. What is the glorification in the the 50s into the 60s of like, oh, she's sweet, 16, and she's mine, sung Uh, by a fucking 30-year-old. Gross. So gross. Gross. Uh, The marriage only lasted a year, uh, and the two were divorced in 1971. As soon as she hit 18, it was over for her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He honestly went through these cycles a lot where he would be married for a short time and then divorce. Some of these marriages resulted in children. I think he ended up having two two kids. I just want to say you don't have to get married. At that time, you did. You could have a fun time and have some kids and not be married. It's true. (laughs) You could. Um, Or risk getting sent to an asylum. (laughs) Yes, right? Forcibly sent to an asylum. Marriage is an abomination. (laughs) Uh, Later, three of the wives described Tobin as a charming, well-dressed psychopath who turned violent and displayed a sadistic streak. That kind of man. Oh, God. Ew, cringe. Never. <laughs> I like soft boys. Mm, Bo. All the, all the men I've dated have been soft boys. <laughs> and all the women I've ever been interested in have been the opposite. So, yeah. you know? <laughs> in the early 90s, Tobin began some serious criming. 
1993, two 14-year-old girls went to his apartment building to visit a neighbor. When they found out that the neighbor wasn't home, they went to Tobin's flat to see if they could wait there while until the neighbor came back. He let them inside and immediately turned on the girls, holding them at knife point and plying them with liquor and drugs. Uh, Tobin then raped both girls, stabbed one, turned on the gas cooker, and left them to die. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. It's like zero to 60. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, one of the girls woke up and managed to get help. Tobin, in the meantime, fled to Brighton, where he joined the Jesus Fellowship, also known as the Jesus Army. Okay. Um, this is very big... <laughs> Uh, Christian religious group there at the time. There were allegations, obviously, of sexual abuse, uh, financial abuse. Yep, as all cults and, do. It's pretty culty, pretty <laughs> culty. Another story for another time. Mm-hmm. So once he joined the Jesus Fellowship, he lived there under a false name. Okay. Now, police eventually tracked him down, and Tobin was, Tobin was arrested for and pled guilty to rape and buggery, which... Here we would call yeah. sodomy. Yes. I was like, I know what that is. Um, yeah. We call it buggery. I wonder if that's a term that still is used or if they've changed it to sodomy. Because, again, this is like uh, uh, yeah, the early know. 90s. I mean, that's still a slang term that's it is. used. It is. I can't imagine yeah. they would change it. <laughs> um, he did receive 14 years concurrent on each uh, each charge. Tobin was released in 2004 at the age of 58. As part of his conviction in 1994, Tobin was added to the Violent Sex Offender Register. Uh, So in the eyes of the court, he was a pedophile. Yeah. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Uh, So when he was released from prison, he took the name Pat McLaughlin and moved to Glasgow. Glasgow. Of course. (laughs) Of course. Moving without notifying police instantly creates a warrant for his arrest. Yep, sure does. But he was like trying to lay low as McLaughlin while he worked as a handyman for St. Patrick's Church. (sighs) That's why there's all these tropes in media about the handyman, the construction worker. Anyone offering to do work for free in exchange for a Reuben board. Don't trust them. (sighs) They're running away from their past, (laughs) no matter what it is. They're running away from something, yeah. (laughs) Uh, also at St. Patrick's Church was 23-year-old Angelica Kluke, who worked. She was working for the church as a cleaner to fund her studies at the University of Gdansk in Poland. Hmm. Kluke was last seen alive in Tobin's company hmm. on September 24, 2006. Hmm. Kluke was reported missing almost immediately, and in fact, police interviewed Tobin the day after her disappearance. And they didn't even know who they were talking to. They thought they were talking to McLaughlin. Mm -hmm. Uh, On September 28th, Tobin, as McLaughlin, uh, admitted himself to the hospital under the name James Kelly, saying he was having chest pains. Interesting. Not guilt? (laughs) Guilt pains, perhaps? Maybe he got him confused. Yeah. (laughs) On September 29th, police discovered Kluke's body in a chamber that was under the floor near the confessional inside the church. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah. There were some allegations made that she was still alive when she was put in there. However, Mm. uh, during the trial, the forensic experts testified that that was absolutely false. 
Autopsies would later show that she was raped, beaten in the head with something shaped like a table leg, and stabbed 19 times. That's probably like one of those candle holders. Notorious oh, churches. Oh, that could be, especially in a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Oof. Candelabras up the yin-yang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they almost immediately began looking for Tobin, Tobin, who was, of course, in the hospital as James Kelly. At some point, the treating physician discovered that he was going by a false name and that he was actually Peter Ooh. Tobin. And so... Ooh, how? <laughs> Detective doctor. <Yeah. laughs> well, and interestingly enough, he was like, well, if he's going by a false name, that probably means the medical emergency was also fake because <laughs> uh-huh. they couldn't find anything. Anxiety at, from being a murderer. <laughs> at some point, he like notified police who sent someone down to the hospital to, like, confirm that it was actually Peter Tobin. He went into the hospital disguised as a nurse and also under a fictitious name. He, like, confirmed it was Tobin, went back to the police, told him or told them, came back out of disguise and was like, yo, I'm actually a cop. And Tobin was like, I knew it. (laughs) He was like, I knew you were a cop. Are you Mm -hmm. here to arrest me? Um So anyway, he was arrested and shortly after was charged with the rape and murder of Angelica Kluke. Uh, The trial was six weeks long in May 2007. And Tobin was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 21 years. Now, at this point, police began to suspect that Kluke was not Tobin's first victim. Uh huh. <laughs> and so in 2006, authorities began Operation Anagram. It's a great name. Okay. Great name. Uh, to try and determine Tobin's movements and if there were more victims. Uh, so they sort of went nationwide and said, hey, look at all of your unsolved murders, like between these times, and let us know if you see any similarities. This led them to the unsolved cases of Vicki Hamilton and Dinah McNichol. 15-year-old Vicki Hamilton went missing from a bus stop in Bathgate, Scotland on February 10th, 1991. Just six months later, 18-year-old Dinah McNichol was on her way home from a music festival, music festival with a friend in Liphook, Hampshire. The two of them had gotten a lift home with a stranger, and the friend had gotten dropped off first, which left Dinah in the car alone with this stranger. And that was the last time that she was seen alive. Shortly after uh, her disappearance, Tobin pretty abruptly moved to Margate. Um, In 2007, during Operation Anagram, police went back and searched Tobin's former home uh, in Bathgate, that search then also led to the search of the house in Margate, uh, where police confirmed remains had been found in the backyard. It would later be confirmed that the remains of both Vicki Hamilton and Dinah McNichol were buried in the backyard at that house. Well, that puts a little bow on it. <laughs> yeah. They also found a knife at the home with Vicky's DNA. Tobin's DNA was found on Vicky's purse and the sheeting that it was like plastic sheeting that mm. her body had been buried in. So... While serving out his life prison terms, Tobin was again arrested and charged with Vicky's murder, eventually being found guilty on December 2nd, 2008. For that, he received a life imprisonment sentence. He was also charged with Dinah's murder. The case started in June 2009. 
but had to be postponed while he he was awaiting surgery on something. And so it restarted December 14th, 2009. And after the defense decided to offer no evidence during the trial, uh, Tobin was again found guilty, receiving a third life sentence. In total, Operation Anagram had opened up to 1,400 lines of inquiry, eventually narrowing it down to nine unsolved murders and disappearances. Wow. Unfortunately, they were unable to positively find a connection between any other victims as far as like DNA or like there's some things that are suggestive of a connection, but it's like not enough to be like he definitely did this. Um, Some of these include 18-year-old Louise Kay, who went missing in 1988 after saying she was going to be sleeping in her car after a night out with friends, something that was, like, pretty common for her, especially if you're, like, at a bar or something, Mm -hmm. you don't want to drive. Tobin had actually been working at a hotel in the area, and it had been reported that he had actually given her gas money, like, earlier in the day. Uh, It was also known that Tobin worked on and dealt with cars for an auction company. And it would have been relatively easy for him to get rid of her car. Mm -hmm. And neither Louise nor the car have ever been found. Mm. So the thought is he might have like hand painted it. It was like shortly after he had put up for auction a hand painted small car that kind of matched the description, but they've never been able to find it. Weird. Right? 22-year-old Jesse Earl disappeared in 1980. Her remains were found in 1989, concealed in some shrubs in the same area that Louise Kay had disappeared from. 37-year-old Dorothea Meachin disappeared in 1971 from an area where Tobin grew up. In 1974, the decapitated body of an unknown woman was discovered wrapped in plastic sheeting in Swaffham, Norfolk. The details and state the body was in was like, pretty similar to Tobin's MO of like how he was committing crimes at that, at that time. Mm -hmm. The list goes on. I mean, it's like a huge list. There has been some speculation that Tobin is actually Bible John. It just keeps going. I know. (laughs) Uh, Which if you're unfamiliar, Bible John is a Glasgow serial killer who murdered three young girls in the Mm sixties. During the investigations, there was a slight speculation I'm sorry, there's a a speculation of Tobin when it was alleged that he had a violent reaction to victims who were menstruating. Okay. (laughs) Which is something, um, like, at the time of his assaults, like, if he found out this girl was menstruating, it was, like, a violent Mm -hmm. reaction, which is something that people have claimed of Bible John. Like, that's kind Mm -hmm. of what fueled his murders, ultimately. Some hope was lost when it was discovered that although DNA had been used to rule out past suspects, they wouldn't be able to test for a match to Tobin due to deterioration of the DNA from poor storage. Yeah. Like, just get... Guys, we got procedures. Just follow them, I mean, we do now, but back then, like, you just threw stuff in a box and tucked it away. I know. know. (laughs) Uh, Soon after, they discovered that Tobin had actually moved to Glasgow from Glasgow to Brighton before the second Bible John murder. So he wouldn't have been there during that time. There was also a point in time during Operation Anagram where they were able to test a semen sample from the Bible John murders, Mm -hmm. and it came back as not a match to Tobin. So he's pretty much ruled out of, Mm -hmm. of that. After what I would say was not an easy time in prison for Tobin, which 
fine. Like, I don't feel bad about that. Mm-hmm. It, it was marred with health problems. Um, he got slashed up by a razor from his uh, roommate while he was asleep. Which yeah. is like shoo, shoo, shoo. if you if you're accused of sexual crimes and or crimes against children. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I'm pr- I think I remember reading the roommate was also a, like a pedophile. Yeah, that's not surprising. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tobin died on October eighth, twenty twenty two, at seventy six years old. No relatives or next of kin came forward to claim his body, and so his ashes were scattered at sea. That's kind of a lovely end for such a horrible fucking person. They should be scattered into a fucking trash can. Scotland. <laughs> Ew. They got plenty of water around there. Yeah, nothing but water. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so that is the story of Peter Tobin. In total, he had, it was something like 40 plus aliases that he used in the course of his crimes. They, that's part of the reason why they had such a hard time like tracking his movements is because he was using these aliases. Yeah crazy with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I just want to state one more time. Trigger warning. Extra trigger warnings on this. This case is going to be triggering. <laughs> um, it's going to involve some stuff that might upset people and involves a little bit of terrorism so oh boy we're staying in the uk okay and i'm going to be discussing i promise we'll get out of the uk next next time who knows (laughs) it's true um i will be discussing the 2017 westminster terrorist attack oh boy okay buckle up okay buckle down buckle down (laughs) (laughs) that'll be the last time i laugh no So so serious. I hate it. So Adrian Russell Elms was born in 1965 to a single mother in Kent. In his youth, he would use Elms as his last name, but sometimes also his stepfather's last name, Ajao. Um, He had a very troubled youth, dropped out of high school, did lots of cocaine. That was literally in all of the news articles. Did a lot of cocaine. Um, Oh, geez. And was just a petty criminal. So like, not great. All throughout his teens and early 20s, he had a slew of public order offen- disorder offenses. So all kinds of stuff falls under that, you know, drunken public, vandalism, arson, petty theft kind of things. So nothing like super serious. It's usually yeah. like small misdemeanor offenses, we would call them here. Um, his violence ramped up in his 30s. He was sentenced to two years in prison in 2000 for a knife attack in a pub. Oh, God. We're going to see a theme here. Okay. Um, in 2003, he was sentenced to six months in prison for possession of an offensive weapon following another knife attack. Okay. So immediately, 2000, he gets sentenced to two years, gets out, and immediately fucking <laughs> has another knife attack and goes back for six months. <laughs> Jeez. 
Um, during his second bout in prison, he converted to Islam. Oh, and in boy. 2005, he changed his name again to Khalid Masood, which is what he is known for the rest of this okay. crime that he does. <laughs> okay. He did kind of turn his life around a little bit, uh, or seemingly so, I should say, after he converted to Islam. He went on to start teaching English as a second language, okay. and he would take trips to Saudi Arabia to teach, which uh, is a little suspect. It is. Yes. It is. So I, he would go, yeah, he would go twice. He would go in 2005 for a whole year, and then again in 2009 for a whole year to teach English as a second language. Okay. Allegedly. Okay, yeah. We're going to get on some of the conspiracies a little bit. Oh, boy. (laughs) All these trips um, to Saudi Arabia had him popping up on MI5's radar. Now, this might sound racist because he converted to Islam and was traveling to Saudi Arabia and teaching English as a second language. That is also a really common thing for people who are involved in terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. So outwardly, that could appear to be just a little racist, Um, but no. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah um it is i and i mean it's not to say like they immediately like started bugging his phones and doing but right. they were keeping an eye like yes this is they were keeping an eye which you know we're talking uses later things that happen <laughs> we're talking about a post 9-11 world where yes. like mm-hmm. you know you can't ignore the signs yeah if someone's repeatedly going to saudi arabia and they don't have any family there yeah It might seem a little strange. Right, right. So in 2010, Masood was described as a, quote, peripheral figure, quote, in an MI5 investigation of a group of Islamists later convicted of plotting to bomb a territorial army base in Luton. Okay. So he had some connections with people from his travels that were involved in other terrorist plotting. Okay. So he wasn't involved in that, but just had connections. Connections, okay. right. So he okay. popped up in people's phones and chats and things like gotcha. that. Which, gotcha. you know, guilty by association. <coughs> Again, yeah. we'll get to some of the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Following a risk assessment that MI5 does with people, in, like if you're a peripheral figure, like if you're not directly involved, but you might have some connections with people who are planning things. They do like a risk assessment to determine if you could potentially become one of the people. Sure. Sure. Um, But MI5 decided that he was not a threat. Okay. Interesting. I'm making so many faces. Sourpuss faces. Mm. However, at this time, exactly the time that they were determining if he was a risk assessment, he decides to go to Saudi Arabia again on an Umrah visa, which if you're not familiar with that, that is a visa that's issued to those making a pilgrimage to Mecca. Okay. So he was going there for religious-based reasons, Mm -hmm. and he stayed there for an extended period of time on a visa. Yeah. It is believed that while he was there, he was – Potentially planning something nefarious. Mm. (laughs) Of course, this didn't come to light until after the situations unfolded. While he was traveling in Saudi Arabia, he used another alias, and he would go by Khalid Chowdhury. Okay. Um, That was one of his other major aliases while he was traveling abroad in Saudi Arabia. There were other ones, but normally Khalid was his first name, and he would kind of change his last name accordingly. Okay. On March 22nd, 2017 we're gonna it's gonna get it's gonna get hard here for me okay a rented gray hyundai tucson 
drove 76 miles per hour into pedestrians along the pavement on the south side of Westminster Bridge and Bridge Street. Approximately 50 people were injured and four people died. Amongst the dead were Kurt Cochran, 54, who was from the United States, uh, specifically from Utah. He was in London as part of a holiday celebration commemorating 25 years of marriage to his wife, Melissa. Oh, no. Uh, Melissa was also seriously injured in the attack, uh, but she survived. Um, He died at the scene on Westminster Bridge from multiple injuries. Oh, God. I want to warn you, if you look this up, um, I actually, like, almost had a panic attack looking at pictures because I wasn't prepared. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I was looking up the deceased to figure out their stories because I wanted to talk about them. And they show actual real pictures of the dead bodies on the bridge that had been run over. And his picture is the first one. And when they say multiple injuries, that is the lightest way that I'm like, my eyes are tearing up right now because I can remember the picture. Um, He didn't even look like a person. Yeah. Um, So this is actually like fucking horrifying. I know that people like – the thing now is in terrorism attacks and is to use vehicles, mm-hmm. right? Um, because that's not technically a weapon. But if you've ever seen someone get run over in the movies, that is not how it is. Yeah. Uh, it can straight up disfigure and dismember a person. Right. Um, and so it is actually quite fucking horrifying. And mm-hmm. people who are on the scene, like, have PTSD from seeing people's bodies like this. Like, yeah. especially... The, uh, Heather, whose last name I'm forgetting, who got ran over in the U.S. Mm, um, mm-hmm. in the in that attack. Yeah. Um, there are people who had to seek counseling who were trying to save her life on the scene. Hire? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because she was so mangled from the car. Right. Um, right. So it is – it's mortifying. Yeah. Um, so I just caution you severely if you look up this information because you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So let's talk about the other victim. <laughs> um, Leslie Rhodes uh, was from Clapham, South London, and had been visiting St. Thomas's Hospital when he was hit by the car. Um, the 75-year-old was a retired window cleaner who was taken to the hospital and died days later from a head injury. Aisha Friday or Frade, um, had been walking across Westminster Bridge to pick up her two young children from school when she mm. was hit. Um, she is survived by her husband and two children, um, and they were really, really little. Yeah. And the last victim of the bridge attack, specifically, uh, was Andrea Cristea, who was a Romanian tourist, 31 years old. She was visiting with her boyfriend, Andre. Um, he was going to propose to her on this trip. Mm. It's just, like, fucking heart-wrenching stuff. Yeah. Um, she actually... They couldn't find her at first because when she was hit, she went over the side of the bridge and into the river. Um, She was in a coma for a while and died in the hospital two weeks later. Mm. Um, I think getting thrown into the Thames, like, shocked her body and she was in there for a while. After running into pedestrians, the car continued and crashed into a railing on Bridge Street at the north perimeter of the Palace of Westminster. I do have a... uh, map in here of the trajectory and where people had died Mm -hmm. um so you can see like it's a decently long stretch yeah um 
Masood then exited the car and ran around the corner into Parliament Square through an open gate. He ran where he encountered uh, police officer PC Keith Palmer. Um, he literally ran up to this man and just stabbed him. The officer did not have time to even react or pull a weapon. Um, he did not have a gun on him, but he did have like pepper spray and stuff. Um, oh my God. And he stabbed this police officer <clears throat> to death in the street. So that Jesus. was the final victim. Yeah. Around the corner, as he kept running, an unarmed, uh, unnamed police officer in all the reports, I could not find this police officer's name, uh, who witnessed the stabbing, ran towards the scene and shot Masood three times in the chest, mm -hmm. killing him. The entire attack only lasted 82 seconds. Oh, my God. He killed five people in 82 seconds. Yeah, that's insane. Uh, the entire area was evacuated in fear that there were additional terrorist plots happening. Um, anytime a car runs into anything, now it's like automatically this is a terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. um, specifically because of the chain of events that have happened. Yeah. Right up leading to this event and then several other after it that I will talk about. Right. Um, we forget about what fucking happened in 2017. Um, everyone's like, oh, 2020 is the worst, but <laughs> it was going downhill long yeah, it was before going that. Downhill. As soon as yeah. 2010 hit, everything went to shit. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. 2012, when the world was supposed to end. That we're actually in an alternate timeline. Yeah, the world yeah. did end, and we're just in purgatory. Fuck. Oh, I don't like that idea. <laughs> we're in purgatory. It explains so much, though. right? It would. The simulation is over. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so uh, the entire area was evacuated. The parliament was evacuated. Um, a bunch of other governmental agencies were told to shelter in place. Immediately after the attack, police determined uh, that he was alone in his action. The following day, they started investigating the motive and if there were any other plots being put into action. Uh, they collected CCTV footage, uh, raided Masood's flat, and checked his digital footprint. They found that Masood carried out a reconnaissance of Westminster Bridge in person and online three days before the attack. Okay. So he went there, scoped out the area, determined where he could put his car, and then also looked at online aerial shots and Google Maps images of the area. Oh, God, yeah. He spent the night before the attack at the Preston Park Hotel in Brighton, and the the um, bartender of the pub said he was acting jolly and merry and laughing and buying drinks and having a grand old time the Oof, night before the doofa. attack. Um, they also tested him afterwards to see if he had been on anything um, and determined that after taking a blood test, he was on steroids and had been taking steroids leading up to the days before the attack, which I thought really? was kind of an interesting, weird twist. Yeah. Cause I mean, we all know steroids will definitely like affect your mood in mm -hmm. very ex like mood extremes, right? Yeah. Like intense anger or intense happiness. Like, mm -hmm. But it also affects your stamina. And mm. I'm thinking that's why he was taking steroids. Okay. Um, but no one truly knows. He wasn't like a he wasn't going to gyms and things like that. So yeah. it was kind of like a weird thing that he was taking steroids. So Yeah. Yeah. So they also discovered upon looking at his digital footprint, um, that see he had been on the WhatsApp message app. Like hours before his attack so that's how they were a little bit concerned if there was something else that was happening or if someone else was involved or mm. if he was planning additional things a lot of times with terrorist attacks 
they'll plant bombs or explosives or things like that, or the vehicle that they used will explode or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of like checking to see if there was anything else or anyone else involved. Yeah. They also saw that he had left some written documentation, (laughs) like a manifesto of sorts. And it was reported that he was also talking online about waging jihad and revenge for Western military actions in Muslim countries in the Middle East. Okay. But the one written paper that they found was titled Jihad in the Quran and Sunnah, which had multiple extracts from it about the Quran and how it should be interpreted as supportive of jihad and martyrdom. Oh, boy. So that is kind of the contention that a lot of people have with the understanding of the Quran is there is a lot that is subjective and can be misinterpreted. And that's why there is this issue between like, you know, Islamic Muslim people who want to mobilize and kind of have a jihad when then there's you know the other half people like that's not actually what it says yeah um so i mean you see (laughs) you see a very similar thing with christianity let's be real like Mm -hmm. i mean i think this happens a lot with a lot of religious texts Mm -hmm. it's all about interpretation exactly um you know unless you're like a buddhist that's like very zen you know you're probably gonna see some sort of extremism view Mm -hmm. of actions that they feel like the religious text is, is mm-hmm. requiring you, you know, quote right. unquote, requiring of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, he actually <clears throat> sent this uh, paper to numerous contacts a few minutes before the attack. So that was kind of like um, a little bit suspect for the police yeah. being like, okay, well, that sounds like he's trying to. But that's really common with people with manifestos is Mm -hmm. to send it out to people that they think they could trust or that will read it or send it to newspapers, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Several people who were friends and acquaintances with uh, Masood were arrested in the following days, like dozen. Um, Metropolitan police said that they believe the attack was inspired by international terrorism, so things that were already kind of happening. The Islamic State-associated Amak news agency announced that the attacker was, quote, a soldier of the Islamic State executing the operation in response to the calls to target citizens of coalition nations, end quote. So they were kind of like saying that he was involved in all of these higher, greater things that were happening, and he was connected to all these things. Yeah. But the police believed this to be extremely false claim, and then they just wanted, the like, all these organizations just wanted to take credit for this particular attack because it was mm. in a Western yeah. state. It's kind of like whoever jumps to it first. Yeah, so, like, when ISIS was claiming a lot right. of those things, and I, there was another organization. Yeah. Um, Al- like Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda. You know, yeah. there's another one in between Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, yeah. But, you know, when they would come in and state that, oh, yeah, we're responsible for this. Mm-hmm. But really, most of the time, it wasn't, but they just wanted to bring that into the fold in the conversation, confuse things. Right, um, right. So, yeah. But, you know, it didn't really happen. <laughs> So the other interesting thing that kind of I found in the readings was that between 2012 and 2016, so leading up right up to the attack, Masood appeared in MI investigations multiple times as a contact of individuals linked to, I hope I don't butch this, Al-Mahujaron. Sure. Sounds good. Sounds like I did it. (laughs) 
Uh, this organization is actually a militant network based in Saudi Arabia, and they're linked to a bunch of different terrorism groups or terrorist acts specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was acquaintances with people who were involved in this organization or who had contacts to this organization. The fucking ridiculous thing about this entire thing that made me super fucking angry and even with like 9-11 and a bunch of other terrorist attacks that have happened since then is most of these people were on watch lists. Yeah. He was on a watch list. He was investigated by MI5 dozens of times. Mm-hmm. He was linked to lots of people. And yet he was still able to do this. Yeah. So like what do those things even do? Like yeah. what does an investigation even do? What does the watch list even do? Because how many people have been able to still have a terrorist attack done? Yeah. <laughs> like – yeah. What the fuck? It's, it's an interesting line because, like, I think there are people who get caught up in these surveillance nets that are not necessarily mm-hmm. um, a like part of a terrorist organization or planning to go that way or you know any any of that. Um, yeah, like you could be friends <clears throat> with people or go to uh, church or right. to the mosque and and right. talk to people that you are not aware of that are involved in other things. I I think like. When you look in comparison to, like, the U.S., for instance, we kind of take the opposite approach where we very aggressively to a pursue. I would, I would, well, <laughs> terrorism, my, yes. My point <laughs> is, is we very aggressively watch these people to the point where it sometimes becomes entrapment, mm-hmm. where we yes. become too far involved in, like, okay, let's try this out and see Coaxing if this. Coaxing them into this. Yeah, yeah, we'll plant somebody to, like, offer them weapons to go do this terror- terrorist attack. And then the next thing you know, they're being arrested because the FBI talked them into, mm-hmm. you know, which is another, yeah. pro- like, a whole other issue not in and so of much itself. But, like, domestic terrorists, though. No, no, I'm not talking about domestic, <laughs> right? domestic terrorists. We're, is his own thing. we're all about trying to stop, like, Islamic and yeah. Muslim terrorism, yeah. but not yeah. domestic terrorists. Yeah. That's the line. <laughs> and I think, so it's interesting to me because whereas England has this sort of, like, hands-off approach almost, like, the U.S. sort of does the opposite, where it's mm-hmm. very, like, in some cases, in a lot of cases, I would even say, for things that don't count as domestic terrorism, like, a very hands-on, guiding hand to, like, we're gonna catch you kind of thing, which is not that great either like and we'll talk about all the other fucking events that happen and what they did in response mm-hmm. which was pretty much nothing of course of course <laughs> God, yeah I'm okay um but after this attack too um just like with what happened with 9-11 right where you have this fear of like racist and mm-hmm. anti-religious sort of pushback so mm-hmm. muslim groups immediately upon after like literally the day after this happened um were condemning the attack. So the Muslim Council of Britain, the Ahmadi Muslims of the UK, and individual mosques across the entire country condemned him, condemned the attack, held candlelight vigils, went and placed flowers on the bridge, like Mm -hmm. making sure that people were aware that they did not think this was fucking acceptable. Right. Um, Which is so sad that they feel like they have to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to make them the Muslim community like very visible after something like that to be like, this is not all of us. And a lot of that has to do with the intense racism that came after Mm -hmm. literally any terrorist attack since 9-11. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is horrible. It's fucking horrible. Yeah, but anyway. like the attacks specifically in the United States that directly, like literally the day fucking after mm-hmm. the the twin towers were struck. The amount of Muslim people in, who were 
fucking beat in the street, yelled at, shit yeah. thrown at them. Like, that is not okay. Yeah, yeah. Especially because we didn't have all the fucking information yet. Yeah. And they had, <laughs> I mean, they had, granted, I keep saying 9-11, like, we're talking about America. We're not. We're talking about England, but right? But, that like. that was a major turning point. It was. It was. And they even had. affected the globe. The attack on um, the French newspaper mm-hmm. was, like, not long after that either. It was, Correct. like, a few years mm-hmm. after that. So, like. There was shit going on over there just as bad as it was here. Like There were far more terrorist attacks, um, like radical Islamic t- attacks in Europe than there mm-hmm. have been in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is due to access. Like, it's easier. Yes, it's closer. <laughs> it's closer. Yeah, you don't have to fly as mm-hmm. far. You can do a lot of that travel by car. Mm-hmm. Like, But yeah, I mean, it's not just us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is what I'm saying. Which <laughs> I came to this realization of how many have happened in England mm-hmm. by researching this. And I'm like, I remember these things happening, but I you just forget how close right one right after the fucking yeah. other. Yeah. Like literally 2010 was like, we're gonna fucking go off on Europe. Like mm-hmm. yeah. there were so many attacks. Yeah. So police determined that Masood acted alone but was encouraged by media and readings about radical Islam. However, this is where shit gets even darker. Three months after the Westminster Bridge attack, another identical attack took place on the London Bridge in June of 2017. Oh, God. Do you remember this? Um, Like, I remember these things happening, but then I'm like, oh, my God. This was like one after a fucking another. Three months. Eight people were killed and 48 people were injured, including members of the public and four unarmed police officers who attempted to stop three assailants from driving their car onto the bridge to hit pedestrians and then exiting their vehicle to stab people. Identical. Identical. Bridge everything. This was deemed another radical Islamic terrorist attack. You would think that would be it, right? No, wrong. On November 29th, 2019, another London Bridge terrorist stabbing took place. This time, no car, but literally ran yeah. onto the bridge and started stabbing people. Dude. And what does England do in response to this? Nothing. Nothing. No. They implemented new security measures that were um, to add concrete barriers to the bridges so that vehicles could not go on to walking bridges. I mean, cool. Except for all the stabbing. Right, (laughs) right. So they then increased CCTVs across and started adding a ton more specific police officers who were supposed to stay in these areas. Which totally worked, right? No, because how many fucking police officers were stabbed or injured during all of these attacks anyway? Yeah. (laughs) Even though they were armed. True. So they basically implemented this across eight central London bridges. That doesn't do much for the rest of the... Like, London is nothing but fucking bridges. Yeah. Yeah. And traffic circles. (laughs) Yeah. It's all London is. It's true. Um, And there was never a terrorist attack again. Yep. No. (laughs) So their response wasn't great. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that they didn't have any secretive surveillance things happening through the MI5. But the MI5 didn't stop the first three... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This entire this entire thing that I like researching this just made me so fucking upset. And what was outrageous to me again was the fact that all of these people had been investigated and linked to extremism or mm-hmm. other terrorist plots, and yet 
they were all of them were still allowed to execute these plans and kill people in public spaces. And the fact that the parliament didn't really respond in a, a great way, I think, just goes to show that like we have no fucking idea. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we have no idea what we're doing. Yeah, or how to co- quote unquote combat this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's upsetting is instead of trying to figure out ways to like work together with organizations to stop extremism before it even starts. Instead, we're doing things where we're like reacting after the fact. Like, right. oh, let's put up concrete barriers and add cameras. Instead of trying to, you know, say, okay, well, what radicalizes people? Why does that happen? How mm-hmm. can we prevent radicalization? Yeah. So that was all about the Westminster Bridge terrorist attack. And Damn. What a downer. I, I don't know. How do we stop violence in public I spaces? I don't have I don't have the <laughs> That is the for ultimate that. question. Yeah, yeah. I hesitated to even cover this because I was like, you know, such a downer. And also like, what can you do? What can you do? We I are know. living in a post 9/11 world. All I kept thinking about was going back to 9/11. Like all I could think about was 9/11 during the entire time I was reading about this. And I'm yeah. like, this was what started it all. Yep. Pretty much. And how how did we react? Not in a great way. Yeah. In fact, we invaded a bunch of countries that had nothing to do with anything. Oh, God. George Good Debbie. job. <laughs> Good job, Bush. Um, so. If you need something to <laughs> lift you up from <laughs> this, <laughs> this, whatever this is. This sad pit um, of despair we're in. 2023. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you uh, check out this podcast? <laughs> Need an escape? Vanish into the depths of a magic forest. Head out on an interstellar repair mission. Travel back in time to change the future. Explore inside someone or something else. Meet dragons, werewolves, birds, bears, aliens, mermen, and a man with a fishbowl for a head. All in ten minutes or less every week. Tune in to 600 Second Saga for your weekly science fiction and fantasy escape. Well, that has been our episode. Another oh, one in the books. Now it's my turn to be a downer. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I can't do it all the time. It's right? bad for my I mental gotta health. I got to step in and yeah. be the downer every yeah. once in a while. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode. <laughs> um, first of all, what the fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> you can find more just like this at mm-hmm. thebadtastepodcast.com, where we also have links to our merch store and our Patreon, um, all sorts of stuff up there. Mm-hmm. Don't have anything planned for this year, but stay tuned because we, we probably will. We I might. mean, we might. I'm <laughs> not committing to anything, yet, but like, but we might. We might. We might. <laughs> um, Janelle, you have anything before That's we close it. out? Just um, stay safe out there. Don't do any attacks on anybody. We'd appreciate it. But also, arm yourself <laughs> pepper spray. And Krav Maga. Krav Maga, yes. Krav Maga and Pepper Spray are your best friend. I don't know. On that Stay note. alert. That's all I got. <laughs> our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, The Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> so sad. So sad. <laughs>